you ever feel that God is invisible? That he is absent from the world? That he might not be active right now? Do you ever wonder how we should act in a world where others seem more powerful? Where governments seem to be in total control? Where God's people get sidelined? Did you know there's a Bible book all about that? Over the next few weeks, I'm going to be sharing my sermon series from the book of Esther. Esther's a book where God's name doesn't even come up once. But when we look carefully, God is extremely active. It's a book with conspiracies, uh, misuse of power, supposed coincidences, relationships and far more. Are you intrigued? Well, let's dive in, shall we? Esther chapter 8. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favour and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, I've given his estate to Esther and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now, write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once, the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan. They wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors and nobles of 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people, and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. 
For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honour. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, with fasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. We all know what joining a side is like, don't we? Uh, Perhaps that was in the playground football matches of your youth. Uh, Perhaps that's in the disagreement going on between two friends. Perhaps, I don't think we've had this, but perhaps it would happen in a decision in a church members meeting. Hopefully not. You see, some of those sides matter and others, well, not so much. Uh, Sometimes people make a big deal out of the choices and the phrases uh, tribalism or left and right get thrown about. And quite a lot of the time, those decisions don't really make much of a difference. But every so often, a decision really does matter. Uh, Will I take that job? Will I stand with that cause? Will I do what culture says or what God says in this matter? I mean, in a world missing God, it doesn't really matter, right, what decision you make. And that gets more complicated, doesn't it? When you think about which side uh, looks more powerful. Uh, What side is going to help you reach your goals? What side looks like it's going to win in the end? And then mix in all the other factors as well. What does my family think? Uh, Where does culture tell me to go? Which one of these is the easiest thing to do? You might be thinking as you're listening to me, it's easier just to throw in the towel and think, well, does it really matter at the end of the day? Yet Esther's been showing us in plain terms that even the most solid, the most definite, the most seemingly unbeatable plan, if it doesn't align with God's purposes, if it doesn't align with God's promises, it is going to crumble. And we see that this evening, Esther chapter 8. Esther chapter 8 presents us with a decision to be made in the citadel of Susa. In fact, in the entire world, there are two, two concurrent decrees, two things that are legally allowed, two sides to pick between. And the choice has to be made. And it matters that this is in the book of Esther. Do you remember where we've been? This is a decision that's going to affect the entire world. Xerxes' kingdom is basically the entire world. All 127 provinces of it spanning the globe. You might not want to be part of this kingdom. You may not want to be part of this world, but you are stuck. You are stuck in the middle of it. And it's a decision all about the future and what's going to happen in the future. A decision that needs to be made in the in-between. A decision that needs to be made whilst we wait. And so as we're called to remember the story of Esther, we should see that we're called to make similar decisions today. Of course, it's not Team Haman and Team Mordecai, but it is about whether we believe, whether we think that God is in charge and whether we think he can be trusted. Do we side with God's plan or do we side with something else? I don't just mean in the easy decisions, I mean in the difficult ones too. The ones that might put you on the outside socially, uh, the ones that might lose you your social status or even the ones like here in Esther chapter 8, the ones that put you directly in the firing line. For Christians all around the world today, there are decisions like that to be made. Just put yourselves into the shoes of God's people of Esther's day for a moment. 
Uh, amazing things have happened, haven't they, in the city of Susa? There's been a grand reversal. One of your very own people has gone in the place of a mediator to the center of power and succeeded. Another one has been proven righteous and taken from death to life, exalted to the very highest place above all others. Yet there is still a decree out for your destruction. There are still people out there who want to kill you. So what are you going to do? Which side are you going to take? Welcome to Esther chapter 8. You see, we could have ended the story in Esther chapter 7. The baddie was dealt with. Everyone went, woohoo! The goodies got their reward. We all shouted, yay! And the camera fades to black. And it says they had lived happily ever after. But the Bible is no fairy tale. And the author is not done with their intended points. We're not there yet. And so we come to Esther chapter 8 and we see that decree is still looming. The side you pick is going to make a difference. The day is coming. Yeah, the good news in this chapter is that things aren't changing. There are more reversals to come. God is keeping his promises. And you can see that in the first few verses, verses 1 to 8. Everyone has two options. Have a look at that with me. See, in these verses, there is a complete reversal of everything that has happened before. Uh, if you were so inclined, you could go through this chapter and compare it with Esther chapter 3. And what you'd find is that there are whole chunks of Esther chapter 3 that have just been copy and pasted directly into Esther chapter 8. Uh, the king's ring gets given again. Uh, the scribes, they're summoned again. A decree goes out again. Yet it's not a complete reversal. I think this is the key to this chapter. You see, it's not that there is one option that has replaced another. If you look really carefully at this text, the author is at pains to tell us that you simply cannot do that in Susa. Have a look at verse 8. Xerxes says, now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. Do you remember Haman's decree was exactly the same? So we're left with two options. To kill God's people on a certain day, or to defend God's people on a certain day. There's a choice. Do you see that? Are you team Haman, or are you team Mordecai? You can see how those sides stack up in the text. Verse 1. Firstly, Esther reveals her connection to Mordecai. Esther told Xerxes how Mordecai was related to her. She had kept that secret up till now. But now we're in this reversal section. She makes that known. And then Mordecai is installed as the new head of Haman's estate. And in verse 3, Esther goes back to the king. Uh, she goes before him one more time. She risks her life once again. But this time, she does what Mordecai actually asked her to do. You see, she hasn't done that yet. Back in chapter 4, verse 8, Mordecai said, go and plead to the king for your people. And she hasn't done that yet. Explicitly hasn't done that yet. But here, she does it exactly. You see, Esther has picked her side. Esther asked the king to overrule the previous order from Haman with one from Mordecai. She ties herself to God's people. They are all united together here. That is a big reversal. 
Do you remember what Esther was told not to do back in chapter two? This statement here. Mordecai said that Esther should keep secret her family background and nationality. That is what Mordecai told us to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. But now she uses the same words, verse six. She says, for how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? And how can I bear to see the destruction of my family? You see, all the way through, again, this perfect reversal of language. All of Israel coming back together to join one team. And so a new decree is written. But it cannot overrule the last one. The two, they just have to sit there side by side. The people of the world have to decide, which one am I going to follow? Which one am I going to obey? One law that belongs to Haman. We're reminded of his ancestry here. Verse one, he is Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Verse three, he is Haman, the Agagite. And verse five, if we still haven't got it, he's Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. We're meant to be reminded of who he is, his family connections. We're meant to be reminded that he stands for God's enemies throughout the entire Bible. Team Haman. And then there's the other law that belongs to Mordecai. Have a look, verse seven, explicitly called there, verse seven, Mordecai, the Jew. You see, we're given the two sides. In the blue corner, Haman, enemy of God's people. And in the red corner, Mordecai, the Jew. Which one are you cheering for? Hashtag team Haman or hashtag team Mordecai. So there were two options. And those options, they are sent to the furthest corners of the kingdom. You see, everybody hears verses nine to 14. Have a look at verse nine. At once, the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan. They wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealing the dispatches with the king's signet ring and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. Do you get it? Do you get the idea? Everyone hears it. It goes out so quickly, it goes to the very furthest reaches of Xerxes' kingdom, to the edges of the world. No one is missing this news. Everyone hears it in their own language, in their own scripts. In fact, that means everyone has heard both decrees now. Uh, for the past three months, those who've been wanting to attack God's people, they've been preparing sharpening their swords and the rest. And now there's another nine months for them to change their minds and for those who are defending themselves to get ready. I think this is key to understanding what's going to happen next in Esther. So if you listen well now, it'll help next time as well. Because I think we can imagine people choosing their sides on a whim uh, as a fight between confused parties where maybe someone missed the memo, uh, doesn't know what they're doing. So it's important now and next time to clock that this is all premeditated. This is taking the opportunity to wipe out the Jews, which in Esther means wiping out God's people, which in Esther means wiping out God's salvation plan. You see, these people who are going to attack are people who hate God and hate God's people. See, this is serious stuff. If they succeed with what they're going to do, then God loses. Just remember that. So this decree goes out. Do you notice some detail there? It goes out, verse nine, in every language, just like Haman's decree did. 
but now explicitly also to the Jews in their script and language. Now verse 10, it's sent out by couriers just like Haman's, but this time it is the fastest horses in use, those who've been especially bred for the king. And what about the decree, verse 11? Mordecai does what most lawyers do. Two keyboard shortcuts, control C, control V, copy and paste. I'm informed by my lawyer friends that that is most of the job of being a lawyer. But what is the difference? There is a slight difference here. The difference is that this decree gives the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves. It adds the right for God's people to stand. God's people are to stand, not fall. That's an important idea, an important word in the book of Esther. And so the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, is put into everybody's calendar. The day when the decision will make a difference. Just to underline that, verse 13, a copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. So you see, there is a choice to be made and everyone hears it. And so finally, verses 15 to 17, everyone has to decide. Now, it's possible that some people just kept out the decision process, but the author writes this in a way that makes us see that everyone makes a decision. It's written in a way that makes you think everyone has to decide either for God's people or against God's people. Now, just notice Mordecai comes into the presence of the king, verse 1, and in verse 15, he comes out again. And what a sight! Uh, He's dressed in blue and white with a large crown and a purple robe of fine linen. What else have we seen in the book of Esther that has been decorated this way? Anyone got any ideas? Blue and white, purple, linen. It was the garden. Do you remember this? Esther chapter 1 verse 7. The garden. And back there in chapter 1, I was making a point. If you remember all those weeks ago that this is a picture of where God is. Because in the Bible, the main place that's described with this stuff is the temple. You see, in the world missing gods, we were saying back in chapter one, that the palace of Xerxes was a poor imitation of Solomon's temple. And that seems to be the point here. See, Mordecai is wearing Team God uniform. If you side with Mordecai here, you're siding with God's people. It's an amazing transformation. You know, the last time the horses bolted out of uh, Xerxes' stable, Mordecai donned sackcloth. But this time, as the gates are opened, Mordecai appears in royal temple regalia. Last time the horses went, the city of Susa was bewildered. But now, have a look at verse 15. Now when the horses go, the whole city holds a joyous celebration. Uh, God's people, verse 16, they celebrate. Verse 17, they feast. See, they were in the firing line. They were at death's door. They were fasting and covering themselves in sackcloth as if they were already dead. But now the tables have been turned and there is rejoicing. And then the end of verse 17, this really odd statement, although we should be able to make sense of this now. Verse 17, many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Now, this gets confusing if you think being a Jew in Esther is simply a nationality thing. 
But if we get that being a Jew in Esther's time is to be God's people, then this is a bunch of people making a side, taking a side, marking themselves out as God's people. You see, it makes total sense. Many people across the kingdom, we're told, across the world, pick their sides. In fact, similar to the book of Joshua. Similar language here. We're going to see that more next time. But that's the point. That is the point because it is important in a world missing God to pick a side. Because the day is coming when it will make a difference. You see here in a few months time, the decision is going to matter all all the way around the world. One side is going to win. One side is going to lose. It is life or it is death. It is stark in this situation. And the big point of Esther is to remember that. To remember the story of Esther and what happens. Because our world is still like that. Just think about it for a moment. There are decisions, aren't there, daily to stand with God. Because the world is still like that. And the decisions are tough. Yet on this side of the cross, the one who represents God has definitively and ultimately shown which side is going to win. The one in whom the fullness of God, the fullness of God's presence resides forever, has come and shown the winning side. But in this world that's missing God, we're still in the in-between time. There are still others who seem strong, who seem powerful, who seem to be winning. But the declaration went out from Calvary that very day, and we're waiting for the end. And that means that we are called in this world missing God to pick a side. So this evening, the question is, which side will you pick? There are so many sides that seem so powerful right now, aren't there? Are sides that are claiming to be on the right side of history. You only need to open the news this month, don't you, to see that work. But if you know where everything is going, then you side with the one who holds the end from the beginning. You side with the one who's made promises and again and again has been shown to be faithful. It's not going to be easy. It might put you on the wrong side of people. But we're called to think, which side will we pick? Thank you so much for listening. Any feedback or questions can be sent to podcast at david-couch.com and I'll catch you again next time.